Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. But today, in the spirit of the holidays, I'm giving out this very special bonus episode of Joe Hill's 2013 Yuletide Thrill Ride, the Christmas-themed horror spectacular Nosferatu. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son the author of the short story collection 20th Century Ghost, the rocking road trip heart-shaped box, the tragically beautiful and beautifully tragic horns, the generationally magic lock and key. This novel, Nosferatu, marks the second bonus episode for a Joe Hill novel, uh, the first being my two-part review of Horns, which you can find here at the Stephen King cast. Now, just in terms of Joe Hill, I would just say that Horns is my favorite uh, I think that what he does in terms of character and tone is absolutely unbelievable. Um, if you haven't read it, please do so. Uh, if you have read it and haven't listened to uh, the review, feel free to check it out. Um, but he started off um, in terms of novels with Heart-Shaped Box, uh, which is a great first entry in terms of putting out a, a novel out there. I think that it has great... Uh, appeal for, for mass audiences, or at least for, for audiences of the horror genre. Uh, but I think that when it comes to just uh, great writing, um, I, I think that his collection of short stories with 20th century ghosts is where it's at. I, I'm going to review it at some point. I, I'm thinking right now uh, I'll do it for... Uh, next October for Halloween because it's definitely an October kind of read and to me when I think of Joe Hill I think of this publication more than the rest I just think that it's the most potent display of, of his talents and aside from Nosferatu the, the most recent and, and the one that was the most consistent over the longest period of time is Lock and Key now this is his comic book collaboration with uh, Gabriel Rodriguez and it's sheer awesomeness it's awesome uh, and I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but I believe that this collaboration shaped a lot of what makes Nosferatu what it is. Um, and I'm going to get to that. Now, I'm going to get to a lot of points when it comes to Nosferatu, but the first thing I want to do, I want to read the, the Wikipedia summary so I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. This book takes place over several time periods, with the book opening in a hospital in 2008. Charles Talent Manx known for abducting children with his 1938 Rolls-Royce Wraith, briefly wakes out of a coma in order to threaten a nurse that was caring for him. Her co-workers don't believe her claims, saying that he was incapable of walking or talking. The book then shifts to 1986, where Victoria Vic McQueen discovers that she can find things by riding her Raleigh Tough Burner bicycle through a bridge called the Shorter Way Bridge, previously thought to have been destroyed. Once on the other side, she is always where she needs to be to find whatever it is that she was looking for. The process takes a large toll on Vic mentally and physically, especially as she has to lie about how she finds things. She eventually travels to an Iowa library where she meets Maggie, a librarian that can use Scrabble tiles to find out where to look for missing items or information. The process also takes a large toll on her, causing a severe stutter. She warns Vic against Manx, whom she can only refer to as the Wraith, due to her being unable to divine his given name. 
Vic then travels home, but loses her bike in the process and develops a terrible fever. During this time, Manx enlists a chemical plant worker, Bing, in order to gain access to a gingerbread-flavored souffleverine that the factory produces. Believing that Manx is taking the children to a place called Christmas Land, where nothing bad happens, Bing willingly goes along with Manx's plans and uses the souffleverine. Sev- I'm sorry, I'm, I'm botching that uh, pronunciation. Um, I'm just gonna say the gas to capture children. Years pass and Vic once again uses the shorter way after she has a fight with her mother. She tries to call her demolitionist father to stay with him, but is rebuffed. In retaliation, Vic uses the bridge to travel to Manx's house, thinking that her abduction would hurt her mother. Once there, she begins to experience inexplicable events such as seeing a child with rows of sharp brown teeth and cold air coming from his nose despite it not being cold enough. Vic barely manages to get away from Manx, especially after his house catches on fire. In her hurry to escape, she runs into Louis Lou Carmody, who takes her to a gas station to call the police. While the police are being called, Manx drives up to fill the gas tank and is captured, but only after he sets fire to a man trying to capture him. Years pass, and Vic begins a relationship with Lou and becomes pregnant with a son, Wayne. Unhappy and still scarred over her experiences with Manx, she begins painting motorcycles and later develops a successful series of children's books as a way of dealing with the memories. During this time, she was also tormented by phone calls from unknown children who verbally torment her for getting Manx arrested. Her relationship with Lou suffers and ends as a result, with the two remaining relatively, sorry, relatively amicable. She eventually goes clean, but is confronted with the reality that Manx is still out there when Maggie appears on her doorstep. Unwilling to believe that he still exists, she sends Maggie away and accuses her of lying. Meanwhile, Manx has escaped, reunited with Bing, and has killed Vic's neighbors, sorry, Vic's neighbors, taking residence in their house. The two bide their time as Vic and Wayne fix up an old motorcycle they discovered. It's only when Vic takes the bike out for a test drive, during which time she once again encounters the shorter way that the two move in and kidnap Wayne, beating Vic fairly severely in the process. Wayne manages to call Lou, telling him that Manx has captured him. Vic calls the police to report Wayne's abduction, giving them an altered version of the events that don't include her seeing the bridge. Her story isn't believed because Manx died within the hospital and was autopsied. FBI psychologist Tabitha Hutter is brought onto the case, but still doesn't quite believe Vic. Not even a traced phone call from Wayne shows that he is traveling in between the worlds. Vic decides to go after Manx and Wayne using the shorter way. She first goes to the house of sleep in the hopes of getting her son back, only to find that it is Bing's house. He attacks Vic, but she manages to kill him in self-defense. After reporting back to Lou, who then has chest pains due to undetected cartoid stenosis about her intent to further pursue Manx, Vic takes the shorter way to Maggie's library, where the two women search for answers using Maggie's Scrabble tiles. Vic discovers that the way to destroy Manx is to destroy his wraith, but Maggie is killed when Manx arrives at the library while Vic is sleeping. 
Narrowly missing capture by local police, Vic leaves to go with her father's house in search of some ant foe to destroy the wraith. She successfully gains, gains the explosives, meets back up with Lou, and emotionally reconnects with her father. Vic and Lou are forced to flee after Tabitha and the police show up, believing that Vic was responsible for the deaths of both Bing and Maggie. They end up outside of Manx's home, where she leaves Lou behind before setting out to Christmas land. There she's threatened by Manx's children after she reveals that she's brought explosives with her. Vic fails to destroy the wraith using the explosives, only then to see the car and Manx die in the shorter way bridge as it collapses on itself. The book then cuts forward to October, where it's revealed that Vic died shortly after she and Wayne returned to reality, having escaped Christmas land and Manx. Lou has lost, lost a lot of weight and has begun seeing Tabitha. However, Wayne still has nightmares, where he sees the remnants of Christmas land and its inhabitants, where he is one of them and participates in gruesome games. During his waking hours, he finds that he's still losing his humanity and that his transformation into one of Manx's creatures is still ongoing. Realizing that the now-dead Manx is still influencing his child, Lou takes Tabitha and Wayne out to the remains of Manx's home and smashes various ornaments that are hanging around the property. As the ornaments are destroyed, various children that Manx had kidnapped and transformed appear, completely human. Lou smashes the ornament that stood for Wayne, reversing the transformation. In the epilogue, Manx's true children, including his biological daughter Millie, manage to keep their ornaments and escape from Christmas land in their demonic state. Now let's look at the opening. Hill writes, Nurse Thornton dropped into the long-term care ward a little before eight with a hot bag of blood for Charlie Manx. Already in the opening sentence, Hill does wonders establishing the character of Charlie Manx. Keep in mind the fact that the title is Nosferatu, a play off the famous term for vampire, and what do vampires need but blood. In the opening line, Hill establishes the connotation that supports his Manx's depiction of being a vampire of sorts, and while he may not be one that thrives off human blood, the opening helps push our preconceived notions to the forefront of our brain. Before we get too far along, Hill rears back and grounds us in a recognizable reality of a distracted mother musing on the decision to buy a Nintendo DS for her son. Like his father before him, Hill is a master of maximizing the efficiency of character work. We know everything there is to know about Ellen Thornton in the opening section, and she's our entry into this story, which will by the end of the novel go into overdrive and fly right into another dimension entirely. It can't work unless we have the juxtaposition of reality to make the more fantastic elements that much more fantastic, and that juxtaposition begins with Ellen Thornton. Hill establishes the setting with what seems like ease, creating uh, a supermax prison with gorks, infirmary patients in comas with little ticks. Flourishes like this set him apart from being just an institutionalized Hannibal Lecter or comatose Michael Myers. When we, meet, when we meet eight-year-old Vic as she soars through the Shortaway Bridge, Hill telegraphs the main beats of the story as she rides through the tunnel. He writes, If boards began to snap beneath her, she would just keep going, getting off the rotten wood before it would give way. If there was someone in there, some derelict, who wanted to put his hands on the little girl, she would pass by him before he could move. 
Now we know that the boards will eventually snap, and the derelict will try to get his hands on her. The quest to find her mother's bracelet and the destruction of the real shorter way bridge are inextricably linked. The bridge is now non-existent. It's trans-dimensional counterpart rickety at best. Her, her first ride over it to find a bracelet that she hoped would mollify her parents arguing, but the bracelet is only a temporary solution, for we know that her parents and their marriage will fall as assuredly as the bridge itself. And then the trip to Hampton Beach and coming back brings about dark, prophetic dreams of Sleigh House and the Gask Mask Man. It's a great way to keep us enthralled and want to keep reading. The relationship, the juxtaposition between the normal and the sublime continues with the introduction to Bing, who with Charlie has a conversation about the smiling moon of Christmas land while eating in the parking lot of Denny's, right? It's this recognizable reality that makes their actions and this conversation much more sinister, much more surreal. And then, just like that, on page 62, Hill pulls the rug out from underneath us and gives us the description to the road to Christmas land. Now, I could read huge chunks, hundreds of pages of this text of great um, descriptions and imagery of Christmas land. But it's incredible. Um, I'll start with the first time we see anything um, about Christmas land. Half the sky was smothered over with clouds, but the other half was plentiful sugared with stars, and the moon hung among them, that moon with the hooked nose and broad smiling mouth. It considered the road below with the yellow sliver of an eye showing beneath one drooping lid. Deformed firs lined the road, Bing had to look twice before he realized they were not pines at all, but gumdrop trees. Now, he doesn't stop there. You know, we get to visit the graveyard of what might be, um, which is a horrible name for a graveyard, and it's just a horrible concept. I mean, it's the death of dreams. It's the death of unloved, uh, of um, unfulfilled potential. Um, you know, everything having to do with this other world, this inscape of Christmas land is, it's incredible. It's great. Uh, the book then reaches its conclusion and to its first act, okay, when 17-year-old Vic rediscovers her bike and finds the sleigh house. I know that I just jumped ahead, but narratively speaking, Hill is doing the same with his timeline, so I think that I'm safe. Um, regardless, the visit to sleigh house is masterfully done. Hill serves up a cinematic ready scene on a silver platter. You know, it's up to a potential director to take it, um... This is everything about this. The tension cranks and cranks and cranks. Um, it's brutal to read. It is so thrilling. It's it's just it's awesome. And like I said, this is it's just ready made for the movies. From the house at the end of the path, the waist high grass, the scratchy Christmas music drifting on the breeze, and the ornaments hanging from the surrounding trees. It's a remarkably rich example of the author's ability to craft tone and setting. And it's hands down the highlight of the book. From start to finish, the scene um, lasts a terrifying 42 pages. Hill knows that this is a scene that has to deliver. This is the life-altering confrontation between Charlie and Victoria, and he lands it. 
he hits it out of the ballpark. It's a slam dunk. Whatever metaphor that you want to use to describe this scene, go for it. The point is, from the moment Victoria crosses through the shorter way into Slay House, he builds the tension and continues to increase it past the point where you think that you just can't take it anymore. It starts with a palpable sensation of dread as she approaches the house. It then escalates when she enters the garage to save the boy. Things start to speed up when the boy is a monster used to lure her to him. Charlie arrives, and Victoria is forced to flee inside the house, um, and then further into the house. And as for the house, it's nothing ter- overly terrifying, but it's vivid enough to know that it's a house we wouldn't want to be murdered in, you know, with the long hallway, the green shaggy carpets, the framed pictures of flying geese, streams of flypaper hanging from the ceiling. It's so vivid. And not only does Manx block her from returning to the bike, he sends the bike into the bridge, causing the bike to disappear. Victoria is now trapped. She's forced further and further into the house, which ignites into flames, just as the ghost boy and Charlie simultaneously enter to get her. She's then trapped in the pantry, with the fridge blocking the door while the house starts to go up in flames. How's she going to get out? She has to go up the laundry chute, where she knows he's waiting at the top. But surely she's going to make it. Nope. She slips, tears a muscle in her thigh, and crashes back to the pantry. She eventually manages to escape, but not without cost. She's physically damaged, emotionally scarred, and as Hill writes, by the time she saw the highway, she had left her childhood well behind her. It smoldered and burned to nothing along with the rest of Slay House. And just when you think Hill is easing back with Vic escaping, being saved by Lou, surrounded by a supportive, kindly folk at the gas station, the wraith drives up. But surely the men can overpower Charlie Manx, right? Nope. The Wrath channels a moment of Christine, grabs one of the men's arm with the windshield, and begins dragging him away as Charlie horrifyingly and slowly douses the soldier in gasoline and burns him to death. So that's 40, how many pages did I say? Um, 42 pages. 42 pages that set how high this story can go. Um... It is written so well. Short little chapters um, that just push you further and further along. You are there with Vic the entire time. You feel it from the moment that she, even before she gets to Slay House, but when she rides into the woods away from her parents' house, away from her mother, and just the the pain that she's feeling at that moment, the... um, she just wants to get at her mother. She wants the, the mother to, to feel bad. You know, it's such an honest moment um, to getting to the, the sleigh house. And like I said, just the dread. And you p- close your eyes. You picture it. You He is so good at attacking all of your senses at once. So the the smells, the sights, you can you, everything is just so tactile. It's incredible what he's able to do. And then, of course, there's the emotional component that you're plugged into the entire time if you didn't care about Vic if you didn't uh, connect on any way to what she was going through if you didn't know or it's not even about knowing but if Hill wasn't able to create the sensation of freedom of riding a bike um, or hating your parents for a moment you know I mean it would just be an exploitative scene but it's not you feel for Vic at that point, he has done very, very well at making us know what kind of monster Charlie is. So, all in all, incredible scene. 
And it's unfortunate because I believe that he never is able to top himself for the, the rest of the, the story. Now, from that point, the narrative just jumps forward. Uh, Vic is a mother living in Colorado with Lou, and the story functions really as a strange companion to The Shining, if you think about it. Uh, just like The Shining, we have a young parent who has survived an abusive past, unequipped to deal with the pressures of raising a child, who then dives into alcohol while being trapped by the snows of Colorado. And, while speaking of The Shining, it's also a strange mirror to Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, which follows the story of an adult who has had a traumatic supernatural experience as a child, along with a strained relationship with a parent, which in turn leads to a life of alcohol, and the adult then has to save the life of the child from a supernatural road predator who feeds off youth. And we cut back to Bing in a moment of black humor and slapstick comedy. Uh, when he goes to the rundown church to pray to God, his open mouth becomes a toilet for the perched pigeons. Um, and then he plants his hand into a used condom crawling with ants, which then gets stuck to his hair. Basically what happened is he prayed to God and God answered him and let him know what God thinks of him. More time passes and Vic is just driven to the point of insanity um, and ultimately winds back up in Haverhill and Lake Winnipesaukee in an attempt to bond with Wayne, you know, in order to, uh, you know, symbol, you know, symbolically fix the, the, the parent-child relationship that had been so strained between herself and her own parents. Now, we all know that it's just a matter of time until Manx comes for Wayne. And he does just that. Just as Vic's original scene with Manx was harrowing, so was her reunion, uh, beginning with Wayne's capture to Vic's playing possum while Manx beats her with his morgue hammer. It doesn't pack the same oomph as the scene in the sleigh house, but it's effective nonetheless. And while Manx and Victoria battle outside, Wayne is with Bing inside the wraith. Concern due to Bing's sadism streak and his unpredictable nature, and it's this unpredictable and unreliable nature that gets Manx's earshot off. Um, it's it's so I mean it's a great scene because even as thrilling as it is and as dangerous as it is with you know Vic on the ropes and Wayne in the car, it's tense. It's completely tense, and, and the poor dog um, Hooper. Uh, there's still a comedy. I mean, with with Bing shooting off Manx's ear. Now, Vic manages to escape while Wayne remains in the car, and during his phone call to Lou, Lou has a heart attack, so the, the tension just rises and rises and rises. And while Wayne rides through Christmasland, we get an incredibly clever use of syntax. And again, just showing the cleverness and skill of Joe Hill, and specifically the backwards organization of dead Linda's words to... Um, delay Manx's possession of his soul. Uh, it, it's it's just, it's really cool, and it's this great uh, scene in the back of the car, and we get a great description of the dead grandmother, um, and also there we get this great scene where we really start to see just the, the inhumanity of Charlie Manx. So, he peered into the front seat for help, Hill writes, but Mr. Manx had changed. 
He was missing his left ear. It was tatters of flesh, little crimson strings swinging against his cheek. His hat was missing, and the head it had covered was now bald and lumpy and spotted with just a few silver threads combed across it. A great flap of loose red skin hung from his brow. His eyes were gone, and where they had been were buzzing red holes, not bloody sockets, but craters containing live coals. Who is back there with you? Manx asked, his voice humming and terrible. It was not the voice of a man. It was the voice of a thousand flies droning in unison. As the story continues, we keep getting to visit the comedic-slash-dangerous relationship between Wayne, Charlie, and Bing. One thing that I love about Charlie, and I'm going to get to Charlie, I'm going to get to the character specifically, but he's actually funny, at least in his constant put-downs of Bing, and Bing's seething hatred of Wayne is funny in, in its own right, um, with an undercurrent of danger. After all, we, we don't know what's going to happen if Bing actually snaps. And, you know, ultimately, while that might be a threat of him being a wild card, um, Bing's eventually discarded, and the confrontation between he and Victoria, like so many parts of the novel, is incredibly tense. She's invited into his home, she starts to put two and two together, and just when she realizes who she's dealing with, the rhyming demon, and I'm going to get to that later, turns around with his gas mask face and breaks her nose with the scissors. She's forced into the basement, the den of this demon, because he is a demon. Uh, and I, like I said, I'm going to talk more about that in, in the Bing section of this podcast. And it's described so well. Um, and Hill describes it as smelling of old pipes, concrete, unwashed linens, and rape. Bing's death at the hands of Victoria is one of the book's few triumphant moments. So much of the, the moments are, are tense and awful. Um, but there's quite a few, I'm sorry, there's, there's, there's a, there's a couple, there's a couple moments of just triumph. And this is one of it. Bing is an awful, awful person. You can't wait for him to die because Hill has done a great job of not showing things explicitly what he's done to people, but we have followed Bing's thought process. We have seen him interact with others where he has talked about what he's done to people. So it's never been in our face. And actually not having it be in our face makes it that much worse because, you know, we're able to imagine the horrible things that he's done to people. Um, so he's someone that needed to die. And Victoria taking him out the way that that he that she does with the basically what happens is the uh, the 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 basement starts filling with the gas and she flips open a lighter that she had taken from a cop and just ignites the gas. It follows the trail back to the canister he's holding and just blows him into. Um, it's great. It's great. Um, so that's a great triumphant scene. And another triumphant scene comes a few pages later when Charlie calls Bing only to find a vindictive mama bear on the other end of the line. So it's great. It's great. that It's all in all, that's a great scene. Um, and now there's just a good chunk of text between here and the end. Um, and it's the end that's really worth talking about. We, we stop in with Maggie to find out what happens to Maggie. Um, we see that the FBI and the cops are trying to close in on Vic. 
We see the goodbye between Vic and her father, and all of these I will get to um, in a little bit more detail. But really what I want to talk about, and I can't really talk about that much, it's Christmas Land. The conclusion at Christmas Land, it's thoroughly insane. Um, and aside from me saying it's awesome, um, I, I, the review can't do it justice. Now it's funny. When I reread, and I just want to, I guess I should have said this earlier, this is a reread. I, I read Nosferatu when it first came out. Um, I remember being a little disappointed when I got to Christmas Land. It had been built up so much, we had seen Christmas Land. Um, but reading it again, I just thought it was just, it was nutso. It was bonkers. It was crazy. Uh, and I, I was just really viewing it cinematically, um, and it makes me just want it to be a movie. Um, so I don't know why I was disappointed with it the first time around because I thought it was great. Um, the, the scene at Christmas Land. I, there are some issues that, um, like I said, I'm going to get to that uh, kind of carried over issues that I had had the first time around. Um, but Christmas Land is not is, – if I was disappointed the first time around, I was certainly not disappointed the second time around. I was very, very pleased with the ending. I think that he delivered um, – on the conclusion and so like i said i can't other than saying it's great it's awesome it's thrilling um it's fist pumping i I can't i can't really talk about it you just have to go out and read it um so that's that's it um it has a good ending he's really good at at, at his endings um you know there's the climactic ending at christmas land there's the relationship ending at the end between wayne and Lou, who goes to Slay House and starts destroying the ornaments, and ultimately he's the one that puts the final nail in Charlie's coffin, so to speak. He's the one that saves his son. Um, Vic did all the the hard work, but uh, but Lou's the one that that really comes through at the very very end and and fully um, saves the day. Now I uh, I want to talk about the characters. Um, so obviously the first character that I am going to talk about is Vic, okay? Um, now, Hill does not tiptoe her out to the audience here. Uh, he gives us a haymaker of an introduction, introducing her to us as the brat. You know, and we get all that we need to know about her and the family, the bickering parents, a need for adventure, escape embodied by her bike, imbued with a magical quality with a comparison to a witch's broomstick, and why not? Ask any child who grew up in the 80s where their source of magic came from, and they'll tell you it came from their bike. So it should come as no surprise that the symbol of this character's magical vehicle should be a bike. Of course it's a bike. And it's a very clever um, visual that her uh, method of transportation is a bridge. When she imagines her falling through the rotted shorter way floorboards and feeling satisfied that her parents should feel bad for pushing her to go away, it just just rings true of of childhood thought and emotion, you know. And this is something that I know that um, Mark Twain did in Tom Sawyer when uh, Tom pretended he was dead and he's watching his own funeral, and you know he. It's only at that point when you know he sees Aunt Polly. Uh, you know, thoroughly devastated by what she thinks is his death, um, that he comes around. Because um, up until that point, he wanted her to think that he was dead just so she would feel bad. That's so, such a perfect kid thing. 
and Hill captures it wonderfully because if you've re- if you listen to my review of Horns, you know that I think that the guy is a master, an absolute master, a technician, um, a scientist, a craftsman, an artist, um, everything that you could use to describe of both the science and the art of writing. Um, he is all of that wrapped into one when it comes to character. Now, as she rides her way through the shorter way bridge, we discover her power in a wonderfully developed scene with strong imagery of roosting bats and static scratching outside the bridge walls. Then, on a side note, on a personal note, uh, when she bursts through into Hampton Beach, it felt like I was the one who magically transported. I can easily picture a grill like Terry's Primo because I vacationed at Hampton Beach every year growing up. And I have strong memories of eating three cheeseburgers daily from a place not unlike Terry's. And it's actually at Hampton Beach where I bought The Stand in a local bookstore. Uh, And that book made, I tell you, I tell you, for a perfect beach read. And I just remember the feeling of getting that book. And and I'd wanted it. I'd wanted it. And holding in my hands and knowing, oh my God, I'm holding... And already at that age, because keep in mind, like when I was when I first started my Stephen King kick, I was, you know, uh, in in sixth grade, about to go into seventh grade at that time when I was about to read The Stand, and I was holding it, and I just knew that I was about to read something important and big, um, and just being on vacation, it was just perfect, and just it was. I remember the weather was great. I remember going for long walks on the beach afterwards and just, you know, just thinking about everything that I I had been reading and just internalizing it. And then, like I said, going to a place like Terry's, and I can't remember the name of the, the, just the short order restaurant, and getting the cheeseburgers, and it was packed in the the styrofoam takeout to go, um, and it would get kind of slightly moist from the heat, and it would make the, the fries that much soggier, and it was just going back and eating it on the bed and reading the stand. So the fact that that's where Vic goes and that was the vacation place, it, uh, it rings very personally and, and very true to me. But that's me. Uh, anyway, we, we learned that years passed with Victoria crossing the shorter way bridge more and more to find lost items for friends and family and neighbors. And when she decides to find answers for her ability, she meets Margaret, the librarian from Iowa, Now, Margaret is the mentor to Vic, the Yoda to her Luke, the Glenda to her Dorothy. And forbiddingly, Margaret gives her an escape route from the library, saying that someday she'll need it. Hill plants a seed that won't bear fruit for hundreds of pages and decades later. But more importantly, in terms of the narrative, Maggie is there for one reason, and that's to explain the following on page 99. Your bridge is a short circuit in reality, just like my tiles. You find things, and my tiles spell me things. They told me you'd be coming today, and I could find you out back. They told me the brat would ride across the bridge. They've been chattering about you for months. I don't think there's anything magic about them. They wouldn't work for anyone else. The tiles are just my knife. So, something I can use to poke a hole in reality. I think it always has to be a thing you love. I always loved words, and Scrabble gave me a way to play with them. Put me in a Scrabble tournament, someone's going to walk away with their ego all smashed up. And more importantly, um, Maggie is there to go into detail and give us the thesis of what this is all about, and that is the thesis of Inscapes. Everyone lives in two worlds, 
Maggie said, speaking in an absent-minded sort of way while she studied her letters. There's the real world, with all of its annoying facts and rules. In the real world, there are things that are true and things that aren't. Mostly the real world sucks. But everyone also lives in the world inside their own head. An inscape, a world of thought. In a world made up of thought, in an inscape, every idea is a fact. Emotions are as real as gravity. Dreams are as powerful as history. Creative people, like writers and Henry Rollins, spend a lot of their time hanging out in their thought world. Strong creatives, though, can use a knife to cut the stitches between the two worlds, can bring them together. Your bike, my tiles, those are our knives. After spending too long on the other side of the shorter way, Vic loses the bike and nearly dies in a dream fever. Time passes, and her parents split up. Vic's venomous attack on her mother, blaming her and accusing her of lying, is raw, it's poignant, it's honest. As is the description of the beauty of the autumn light in New England. It's this eye for detail, both emotional and physical, that makes Hill who he is. Hill uses montages of children abductions to speed through the years. And when we next check in on Victoria, she's a senior and in the throes of wild adolescence with a mother at her wit's end. After being caught with a boy in her bedroom, Hill twists the knife during a fight with her mother in which Victoria is completely misunderstood. Her actions, possessions of condoms, a diary entry describing how she slept with the boy are taken out of context, seen incorrectly. It's an uncomfortable scene, incredibly realistic, well-written, but I honestly can't help but think that it's rushed. At this point, we're speeding through Vic's years, stopping to get a view of some key moments, which work because of his ability to capture the truth and honesty in these moments. But without anything to string them together, they just, just feel kind of there, almost like a cheat. After her encounter with Manx, Hill speeds through the years, uh, touching on her as a successful children's author, an alcoholic with past traumatic stress disorder, you know, one haunted by the ringing telephones with calls from Christmas Land, which is all 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 very well described. Um, and all this leads to rehab. She gets out of rehab. Uh, I mean, basically, adult Victoria is a mess. She's sometimes strong. She's sometimes weak. Um, she's ultimately triumphant by saving her child, in order to redeem the childhood that she was denied by her parents and Charlie. Ultimately, Victoria dies. Um, it, it's bittersweet at the end, uh, and th there's a there's a moment in the text that's just beautifully written. Um, it's small. Um, it, it comes when at the tail end of of Lou. I'm sorry, Wayne, um, who whose only ability to delay uh, Charlie's possession of his soul is to speak backwards. Um, so syntactically, we we get the the, the backwards talk. Um, and punctuations backwards, everything's backwards, and it's great. And when she, he sees his mother, he says, Mom, oh, Mom, oh, Mom. Um, and Hill just writes, he, I, I don't have it on me, I can't give you the exact quote, but um, there's a magic quality to it because it's the same forward as backwards. So I, I just got goosebumps um, reading that um, or saying that. Um, and then when he's on the bike, she's been stabbed in the kidney by one of the, the monster children, and he's squeezing her um, as he's on the back of the bike, and you know she thinks he's literally squeezing the life out of me. 
and she loves it, you know, and, and he has his hands, you know, around her waist, and he she reaches down, and she grabs his hand, um, and it's one of the last moments, really. In all of this chaos, they don't have a goodbye. They don't have a tender moment. It's too fast. Things are happening at such a breakneck speed. Worlds are collapsing all around them, um, and an incredible moment where she is driving through the shorter way and Manx and the Wraith are right behind her. The weight of the bridge, um, the weight of the Wraith just collapses the inner portion of the bridge and the bridge starts folding up in itself and Hill writes something along the lines of like a book um, closing, knowing that it's ending, which is of course just perfect because we are, it's the book experience that we're reading. So there's just, there's beauty to it. Um, and that's that's Victoria. I'm gonna get all of this. I I'm kind of dancing around something that I'm I'm saving to the end here. Um, basically, yeah, I'm just talking about the good parts because there's some issues that I have with the book. I I guess I'll just put it out there. There are some issues that I have with the book um, that I that I wrestle with that I uh, I'll be getting to in a little bit. Now there's Charlie. I want to talk about Charlie. Now Hill does not waste any time letting his MVP on the field right away. It's it's it, he starts it off with Charlie. He knows that he has an all-time great on his hands. You know, one that if his father had written would stand toe to toe with more classic villains such as Pennywise and Jack Torrance. And hopefully one day, you know, um Charlie can hold that distinction. Maybe hopefully one day Joe Hill will stand um you know, shoulder to shoulder with his father. Um you know, I mean, he, he knows his position, and he's not, you know, he, I, I just, I really admire Joe Hill. I, like I said before, I admire the fact that he didn't rest on the laurels of his last name. He created a new name for himself. He forged his own path, and he knows, I, I don't want to say he knows his role, but in the acknowledgement section of the novel, he writes, um, when riding with his father on their motorcycles, um, so he, he said, in between the beginning and ending of the work, I went for a motorcycle ride with my dad. He rode with his Harley. I took my triumph. He told me he liked my bike, even if the engine did remind him of a sewing machine. That's a Harley snob for you. It was a happy ride, following him along his back roads with the sun on my shoulders. I guess I've been cruising his back roads my whole life. I don't regret it. I mean, how awesome is that? I mean, such... I mean, look, that comes in the acknowledgement section. I can't think of a better way to acknowledge the relationship that, the professional relationship that he has with his father. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a detour. Uh, but I was talking about Charlie here. This isn't this isn't the Joe Hill portion. This is Charlie. I mean, we, we get a good description of, of Charlie on page four. He was hideous old, not to mention hideous. His great bald skull was a globe mapping an alien moon, continents marked by liver spots and bruise-colored sarcomas. Of all the men in the long-term care ward, a.k.a. the vegetable patch, there was something particularly awful about Charlie Manx with his eyes open at this time of year. Manx liked children. He'd made dozens of them disappear back in the 90s. He had a house below the flat irons where he did what he liked to them and killed them and hung Christmas ornaments up in their memory. The papers called the place the sleigh house. Ho, ho, ho. He's a monster with a theme. It's Christmas. It gives him an edge. It's his leverage into establishing himself as a memorable villain. Hill plays up the iconography. 
He hangs ornaments for his children. His home is called Sleigh House. His magic land is called Christmas Land. And Christmas Land itself has a roller coaster ride, a skyscraper tree. Um, there are heads that are ornaments on the tree. Uh, there are candy cane and gumdrop uh, lamps that are decorating the street. There's a wall that just descends into nothingness. Um, it's just incredible. Hill makes a point of referring to the awful acts of another inmate whose actions are so awful that it sets the stage for Manx to take the title of the book's big bad. Um, his entrance in the story, waking up from a coma, gripping her hand, talking about her son and taking the son to Christmas land and giving him new teeth is gleefully terrifying. You know, it's the character's introduction equivalent of a mic drop. With it, Hill establishes his threat level. He knows things he shouldn't know. Therefore, there's some supernatural quality to him. And the questions that pop up in our minds serve as hooks to keep us reading. How did he wake up? How does he know about her son? What is Christmas land? What does he mean about the teeth? What is the house of sleep? Who is the gas mask man? What's the wraith? The graveyard of what might be? We don't know the the answers to any of these questions, but we want to find out. These handfuls of sentences establishes the mythology of Charlie Manx. We sense the mystery and the history of this character, and it's masterfully done. We get more of Charlie and his flashback, so when he recruits Bing, based on what we know of him in the present, we should know, uh, we should grow uneasy at this pairing. Non-comatose Manx come across like a mix between Leland Gaunt, Randall Flagg, and Pennywise the Dancing Clown. He's intelligent, he's gleeful, finds himself humorous, he's manipulative. And like any good villain, Charlie believes in his work, not murdering or abducting for the sake of it, but because he believes that he's saving the children from their parents. Yeah, Charlie's the scene stealer. Um, but is he? Is he the scene stealer? Or is Bing the scene stealer? With Bing, Hill introduces the Renfield to Manx's Dracula. Remember that Charlie is a vampire of sorts, so it's only fitting that he comes equipped with a villainous helper. Hill continues the Christmas motif with Bing, who conjures images and sounds of Bing Crosby, who couldn't be any different from Manx's sidekick. His soul was a steeple in which all of the bells had begun to clash at once, he writes when he finds out about Christmas land. We get all we need to know from Bing from the description of his favorite Christmas in which he receives his trademark gas mask. And outside the snow came down in big goose feather flakes, and they stayed home together all day, and Bing wore his helmet and gas mask and played war, and he shot his father over and over, and John Partridge died again and again and again, falling out of his easy chair in front of the TV. Once, Bing killed his mother too, and she obediently crossed her eyes and went boneless and stayed dead for most of a commercial break. She didn't wake up until he removed his gas mask to kiss her forehead. Then she smiled and said, God bless you, little Bing Partridge. I love you more than everything. Though the text shifts to a description of the past, the tone does not, reinforcing that Bing, now fully adult, shares the same perspective as he did as a child. Hill intermingles the connotations of Christmas with the horrific, turning Bing's love of the season into an obscene act. He resides in Sugar Creek, a town that conjures the smell of cookies, perhaps the same smell that Bing himself had smelled in his mother's kitchen as a child. 
He fondly remembers his favorite Christmas like any child, but yet the present he received was a mask his father had worn while killing in a war. He stares at an advertisement for Christmas Land during an act one does not typically associate with Christmas, and during the chapter it's revealed that he has murdered his parents. He attends a church that has been abandoned. He dreams of Christmas, with his parents dancing by the tree, but even that is obscene. And then we get the first glimpse of Christmas Land, which is an obscenity of Christmas itself. All aspects of Bing reveal that he's possibly pleasant on the outside, but completely rotten in the core. Basically, con uh, Christmas out of context is disturbing, as Hill writes on page 153. Christmas was almost three months in the rearview mirror, and there was something awful about Christmas music when it was nearly summer. It was like a clown in the rain with his makeup running. What's fascinating about Bing is something that Hill references but never explores, and I um, mentioned this a little bit earlier, and that's that uh, Bing is a rhyming demon, which according to Charlie is the lowest form of demon. Whether he had always been one, which is how Charlie sought him out in the first place, or whether his acts of atrocity over the years at Charlie's behest had transformed him into one is never clear, and I like it like that. It raises the point and lets the audience decide. The inclusion at all gives wonderful texture to the world and raises philosophical questions of good and evil that place our characters' actions in a greater context. Do demons walk among us? You know, what constitutes a demon? If Bing transformed into a demon during his time with Charlie, is that a promotion or a demotion? It speaks to the possibility of an afterlife, so upon death, what happens to Bing? Does he now have some level of stature in a hellish underworld? And if he's a low-level demon, what the hell is Charlie? Ultimately, Bing is a character, as I said earlier, he's just someone that has to go. I mean, you, you just, you're, he's, he's more horrific than Charlie. Um, because Charlie at least has some charisma to him, and Bing is just awful. He's just a thoroughly awful, awful character. Um, very well written. It's not a slight. It's not a slam at all on Hill. He's very, very well written. He is exactly what Hill wants him to be. Um, and his death is, like I said, just one of those strong, triumphant moments in the book. Okay, I've talked about. Victoria, I've talked about Charlie, I've talked about Bing, there's one more character that I need to talk about here, and that's Lou. So here's the deal with Lou. Lou is Joe Hill's receptacle for pop culture references. Now don't get me wrong, I love pop culture references. As someone who puts a pop culture based podcast in the world, I've got to love it, right? I love shows like 30 Rock and Community which are just, they're, they're so rich with pop culture references, like it, it, it hurts your teeth. And that's great. But look, with Lou, I just kept thinking, it's too much, too much. He's too much. For me, Lou is less of a character of a fanboy and more of a caricature of a fanboy. I think there's a place in pop culture um, for pop culture and comic book loving characters. Um, and I think that there's a place in modern fiction for this type of character, but I think that Lou is just a step too far. I mean, throughout the text, I mean, we, when we first meet him, he wears a Weird Al t-shirt. He winds up naming his kid Bruce Wayne. 
Um, he he makes a Tauntaun reference from The Empire Strikes Back. He you know he wears X Men T shirts. He has a dog named Hooper after Dreyfus's character in Jaws. And look, I can relate to the moment, and I, I like this in the book when he realizes that he and Vic could never have worked because she's never seen Jaws. I like that moment. I mean, he wears Iron Man cosplay to comic book conventions. Uh, at one point, you know, he says serious conversations always gave Lou the stomach flutters. He preferred casual banter about the Green Lantern. Um, yes, and then, and then Hill goes for deep nerdism here. Uh, he has a conversation about being a brown coat. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, I mean, that's that's Trekkies for the Firefly crowd. Um, but I think that the creme de la creme here is the fact that he's looking at uh, cosplay girls in Power Girl outfits. He drops in on Miller World, Miller World message boards. I, those are two... It, it, look, if you don't know anything about comic books, you're not going to get these references. Uh, I mean, I think that you can make someone... I'm trying to think here because one of my arguments that I'm going to make is that this book was made for a wide stream mainstream appeal and yet at the same time I'm also arguing that this character is a little bit too uh, too esoteric for a larger crowd um, but I, I just think I mean and look I got every single reference that Lou made that's just the kind of guy that I am for good or for bad um but for me, it was too much. I was like, I don't, I don't need references to Power Girl in 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 a book about a a vampiric, uh, you know, road raged, uh, undead zombie man. I I don't need um, references to the Suicide Girls or Firefly or Serenity. I I, I just think that there's a balance um, that can be made, and I just I think. Personally, from my own standpoint, I think that that Hill just kind of tipped a little bit too much into his enjoyment for just throwing as many uh, pop culture references and specifically comic book references. To me, and I don't know, I I don't know if this was his way of, it, it almost felt like pandering at times to the comic book crowd who, you know, had become very enamored with Joe Hill based on the time that he had spent working on Lock and Key. So I don't know. I, I don't know what was going on here. Um, now, with that said, you know, I mean, I like Lou. He's a likable character. Um, but like I said, he, he, for me, seems to be a little bit more of a caricature. But I think that he's, the writing around him is strong. I mean, he's referred to as a gentle giant. You know, he, he moves slow, and he was roughly as difficult to anger as a character from the Hundred Acre Wood. Um, I just, I think that that is, that also invokes another pop culture reference. Um, but that's one that, that really serves the character in a way that the other references don't. The other references are just kind of references that are there. And, like, we get it, we get it. He's 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 nerdy, he's a fanboy, he he knows his stuff, right? Um, but this, this reference really helps to serve the character. Um, and ultimately, he's the hero in the end, right? You know, I mean, Vic had done all the hard work, um, but he takes that extra mile and smashes the the, the ornaments, thereby saving uh, Wayne's soul. Okay, here's here comes the part that I, I kind of didn't want to get to, um, and I feel bad even talking about it, but this is a review. Um, this is not a... 
this is not just a, a, a blind love letter, all right? This, this podcast is a review. And because it is a review, um, means that sometimes I'm, I'm going to have to talk about things that I, I did not like so much in the book. And it's not the first time that I've I've made strong criticism against the novel. I, I in the in the Cujo review, I was very I I wasn't very um, complimentary towards it. But I I feel more guilty about saying anything bad about Joe Hill than I do Stephen King. But I need to talk about it. So here we go. The first one is Inscapes. All right. Um, I have some issues here with inscapes and how they're presented. Hold on, I'm going to pause. My dogs are going insane right now. I'll be back. All right, I'm back. I think they're calmed down enough right now. They're both staring at me and they both want attention. So um, we're almost at an hour. I'm going to try and wrap this up soon so I can get get to the dogs. Uh, anyway, inscapes. Um, I had issues here with inscapes. Um, specifically the the toll it takes on our characters and let's just look at the character when i say characters i you know i mean we're, re- we're referencing maggie as well but i really I'm, I'm talking more about vic i don't like that there is a cost to using the bike when i read it and i put it together as a whole um i just couldn't help but think is what if vic wasn't limited when she used the bridge what if there wasn't a, a a pain behind her eye what if bats in her mind didn't fly out through the, the the boards what if there was never a danger to losing a part of herself what if it was just a wonderful gift and she was special you know i i think that that would have been more potent and i couldn't help it there they go there they go um i i couldn't help but think that that would have been more potent um you know, I mean, wh- what if the, the, the bike just represented, uh, you know, her, her freedom and being able to celebrate childhood and imagination and all the things that, that's kind of touched upon here? Um, because the inscapes are, are straight up talked about uh, that they, it's where the strong creative types go inward. And so it almost insinuates that a good chunk of fiction um, can be attributed to dream, uh, inscapes, which to me doesn't hold up with how the inscapes work, even within the context of the text itself and what Hill has written. There seems to be contradictory natures to what is defined as inscapes. In the United Inscapes of America map on the iPad, um, the treehouse of the mind is there, but... The, the, the treehouse of the mind I don't think functions the same way as it does here. The night road doesn't seem to, to function the same way that, that it does here. The, the, the key house doesn't seem to function the same way that it does here. So there are nice references to his other novels, but calling them the inscapes of America and asking us to, um, to treat them the same way, it, to me it doesn't add up. So I just feel... What if this was just a gift? What if it was just a gift and she could travel and it was magical? And what if during her first encounter with Charlie at Slay House, that gift became corrupted and broken? What if the rest of the novel played out pretty much the same way that it did? It just didn't... What if it just... 
didn't include the whole part where she got feverish, something was wrong with her brain, it hurt, and it took something away from her. Because to me, by having that take something away from her, it lessens what Charlie takes away from her. I think that by simply having her have this gift and then having that gift become corrupted and having it be a part, have Charlie having Charlie be a part of it, um, and then having her believe that she's crazy and that this was all a part of a dream that she had concocted to try and get through the, the, the pain of having been abducted, and this is something that she has told herself to just not think about the horrors that he has done to her, only to realize that it was true, that is loss. And so to me, I, I, don't, I don't like playing what if. I like analyzing what is. But to me, because it's so close to this, I can't help but feel as though it was close to being great. Um, and to me, this book isn't great. It's good. It's really good. But I think that it could have been great. Um, also with the, the, the inscapes, um, I just don't understand how Charlie was just like them. I, I don't understand why he was imbued with so much more power. I get what Maggie said, how he gave up his humanity, but to me, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't, he seems to be operating on a whole different level. Um, so to me that, that just doesn't, doesn't really work. Two, the pacing. The pacing to me is a little bit repetitive. Um, she loses the tough burner. She gets a new bike. She rediscovers the bridge. She narrowly escapes Manx. She becomes an alcoholic. She rediscovers the bridge again on her motorcycle. Um, to me, I just, why have her lose the tough burner in the first place? The fact that she realizes she can access the short the the short way bridge with any bike undercuts the moment when she rediscovers it again in, as an adult. Now don't get me wrong, Hill makes this work. He makes all of this work. When Vic is 17, spiraling out of control, lost, angry, hurt, confused, spiteful, she finds the bike and as Hill says, she missed the girl that she had been. She had been a better person and she knew it. So it works. But I, I just feel like there's repetition there and I don't think there needs to be as much repetition. And as for characters that could teleport... I just think that we were really limited in, in the setting. New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Iowa, back to New Hampshire, back to the House of Sleep, back to the Slay House. You know, for a book about the open road and going to different dimensions, I don't know. It just it, it just didn't didn't have that grandeur that you know. I just finished reading the Talisman, and that felt epic. That felt like you could go anywhere. And this to me feels really shackled to just a few key locations. Um, for anyone that's gone cross-country, I mean, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a wonder there. There's a mysticism there. There's a danger to the roads that crisscross the country, you know? I mean, it made me think of American Gods by Neil Gaiman. I mean, he got it. Um, I just, I, I, I don't, I don't know if Joe Hill completely capitalized on, on what he had there with the premise. And, um... Then we have plot versus characters. Okay. Um, now, here's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm talking about some problems here, but Nosferatu is the one that I recommend to any Stephen King fan that hasn't read anything by Joe Hill yet. You know, I say, have you read anything by Joe Hill? They're like, no, no, I heard. But he's like, he's Stephen King's son, right? And I say, yeah. Um, if you haven't read it, maybe you should read Nosferatu. Because this, this book, this is the one that feels the most Stephen King to me. 
If Horns is tone-based and character-based, then this one is plot and character-based. For instance, Chris's job as a demolition expert is so strangely specific <laughs> that you know he's only a demolition expert because the plot requires Vic to get her hands on large quantities of explosives. Compare that to Horns, where the reverse was true. The plot was driven by the characters, um, and you never knew what was going to happen next because Hill's characters are purposefully messy, like life, and therefore unpredictable. The entire time, I, I just I thought that the, the characterization in this book had more of a Stephen King feel to them. You know, Bing was very, very trash can man, for instance, and that's a Stephen, that's a stand reference. And if this was another writer, I, I, this wouldn't be a criticism. It would be a huge compliment. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that with this novel, you know, he's appealing to the broader masses um, of his dad's crowd, whether it's um, purposeful or, or just subconscious. Um, and it's still a good book, but I think that for his own identity, um, it was a step backward. Um, you know, his short stories are gorgeous. His novels are beautiful and painful. And in some ways, I'm going to say it, Lock and Key, the comic book, sometimes out-kings King um, in all the right ways. And this, I feel, is his, I, I, I guess, his pop album, you know. Um, and pop albums, uh, they can still be good. But I, I think that anyone that's been following a band for a while and, you know, you hear them raw and, 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 and you have that emotional connection to them. And then when they, they go pop, um, you, you just kind of miss what was there. Um, and it's still strong. And I'm happy if there's huge success from Nosferatu um, that more people get to experience Joe Hill because I feel as though he needs to be experienced but I'm just I, I like the tone and character based Joe Hill rather than the plot and character based Joe Hill and as for the characters they're just not as truthful as I expect from him at this point you know as I said before Lou's almost a character but he's just too far into the realm of fanboy that he comes across as a caricature and Vic the, the tattoos was bothering me. I mean, at this point in, in 2014, why does a damaged person need tattoos to reflect the damages? And we live in a world where everybody has tattoos. The only reason I don't have tattoos is because I'm afraid of the pain, and that's it. I would, I would be sleeved up if, if, it, <laughs> if it wasn't painful. Um, it just doesn't have the, the taboo uh, it, it once did. You know, and for someone that has his pulse on, on the modern representations of characters, I found this particular aspect of Victoria just a little dated. You know, and I'm only coming down hard on Hill because his previous character work is impeccable, as I've stated before. And I'm going to stand by this. And I swear to God, when the time comes for me to review this particular short story, I, I deserve a medal if I am able to get through review without bawling my eyes out. In his short story, Pop Art... He's going to make you cry. If you haven't read it, he's going to make you cry over that short story. And the short story's main character is a talking blow-up doll. The fact that he's able to make me care and not only care, it I'm going to reread it again to see if I'm going to if I'm going to be able to stand by what I'm about to say. It might be my favorite piece of written work I've ever read. Okay? And the fact that it makes me feel so much about a character that is a walking, talking, blow-up doll. Says everything about Joe Hill. Sonny! Don't eat my shoes. Um, okay, so 
his characters' interactions in previous works have always had an organic quality to them. You know, they've felt real. They've felt lived in. Their interactions have been profound, messy, authentic. And I think there's times in this novel, specifically the complex relationship between Hutter, the FBI profiler, profiler and Victoria, that that's exactly what happens. You know, having met during the worst moment of Victoria's life, they immediately strike up some sort of connection, and their banter is palpable. It's both trusting of the other while knowing that the other is holding back. Vic knows Tabitha thinks that she might have something to do with this or at least is not telling her the full truth. And their scenes together are both friendly and tense. Hutter a wild card to the reader who doesn't know how the author is going to use her. Now compare this to Victoria's other relationships. The I hate you relationships with her parents. The you're too good for me relationship with Lou. Compared to Hutter... These massive relationship pieces to the narrative and to our central character are almost one-dimensional and convenient for the plot. And as I've stated in, it before in previous novels and stories, Hill placed emphasis on the characters and let them dictate the plot. Here the characters go where the plot tells them to go, behave as the plot tells them to behave. I haven't read Heart-Shaped Box in a few years, but I recall that the story seemed lean and mean, with the characters functioning within a premise that allowed them to head into the unknown. Shockingly, for a Joe Hill novel, the characters feel chained to the events of the narrative, and I wonder how different the novel would have been if he had gone for the profundity and character work of Horns. And as I stated earlier, this feels more like a Stephen King novel. Now, I know that I just argued that the plot takes center stage, and King is known for the characters dictating the story, but to me, this felt like a Stephen King book. And what's funny is that I'm criticizing that on a podcast called The Stephen King Cast. And I think the only reason I'm so critical of Nosferatu is because, like his father, um... I'm sorry, because unlike his father, I don't know when I'm going to get a new Joe Hill story. I mean, I know that with King, I'm going to get one or two a year. But Joe Hill's releases are special events. And to be perfectly honest, I have higher expectations for Hill. I guess at the end of the day, my argument's this. While I might host something called the Stephen King cast, I think that Joe Hill's the better writer. And for him to produce a story that feels like a Stephen King entry, to me, it's just him not living up to his potential. Now, with that said, it's still a good novel. It's still one that I recommend. It's still one that I really hope gets turned into a movie. Um, it's one that I really enjoy. It's a rich novel. It has a vampiric antagonist with an evil car whose inside has its own laws of physics. It's version of the Mobius strip from uh, Wayne's mother's search engine books. Charlie has his own backstory. He has a supervillain outfit. He's got a special weapon and a crime theme of Christmas. His lair is an extra-dimensional dreamscape um, of an LSD version of the North Pole. Christmas Island has a landscape with its own touchstones, including the graveyard of what might have been. He has a hulking man-child of a henchman who wears a gas mask that makes him look like a giant insect and knocks people out with his version of the Joker or Scarecrow toxin that smells like gingerbread. The villain is opposed by the hero whose ability is to ride through the static world on a bike that builds an imaginary bridge she can then ride through. Her father's a demolitions expert. She's the author of an extremely clever children's book. She gets phone calls from dead children in Christmas land. She's a child with a walking pop culture encyclopedia. Or how when you think of it, it concludes with a cataclysmic and bonkers showdown between the holidays of Christmas and the 4th of July. And the ending in Christmas land is pure insanity. Now, it's awesome. The book, for all the criticisms that I had, and the criticisms are only there because I have such high expectations for Joe Hill, is awesome. 
And Hill still slips in beautiful truths like, Hutter decided that even if that particular boyfriend had been a book, he would have been one for the business and finance section, and she would have passed him by and looked for something in sci-fi and fantasy. Or when Maggie encounters Max, and he writes, She breathed deeply and smelled waterlogged books, the perfume of rotting cardboard and paper that had dried beneath the furnace of the July sun. If a single breath could summarize an entire life, she supposed that that would do. It was almost time. Or when he writes, not for the first time in her life, she wished that Lou had never picked her up on his motorcycle that day, wished that she had slipped and dropped to the bottom of the laundry chute and smothered to death there, sparing her the trouble of dragging her ass through the rest of her sorry life. She would not have lost Wayne to Max, because there would be no Wayne. Choking to death on smoke was easier than feeling what she felt now, a kind of tearing inside that never stopped. She was a bedsheet, being ripped this way and that, and soon there would be nothing but rags. Or when Lou looks into Chris's eyes and Hill writes, his gaze reminded Lou of certain mountain lakes that appeared crystalline and pure because acid rain had killed everything in them. Or how Victoria spiritually eases her father from this world. Or how she has to say goodbye to Lou. Or upon her realization of death while in Christmas land, it didn't hurt in any conventional sense. She recognized what she was feeling was pain, but it was also like childbirth, an experience bigger than pain, a feeling that something impossible was being made possible, and she was about to complete some enormous undertaking, or the tension he builds and builds from scene to scene, or how he includes a post-credit sequence hitting in disguise of a note on the type at the end of the novel. The short of it is, despite any issue I have with it, this book is a lot of fun, and it's one I'd recommend in a heartbeat. If there's any complaint to be had, it's hidden inside mounds of compliments. It isn't his best, and it's not my favorite, but it's certainly better than scores of horror novels out there. I hope it's made into a movie, with an inventive director who steers into the Christmas tropes and associations. And a part of me would love to see Christmas Land animated in the Rankin and Bass style of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's a novel that when I close my eyes, I picture clearly. Scenes play out cinematically. It feels like I'm reading at times a comic book, other times watching a movie. And I think that that's where my problem might lie. I think that this story would work better either as a comic book or a movie. First, I think that the heavy plot and visuals to the narrative come from Hill working so deeply in the comic book world with Locke and Key. By the time he was reading Nosferatu, he was deep in the world of Locke, of the Locke children, the mystery keys, and the charismatic and dangerous Dodge. By the point of publication, he'd already embarked upon a five-year journey with collaborator Gabriel Rodriguez, whose illustrations appear in this novel. I can't say because I'm not Joe Hill, but I wouldn't be surprised if working in the comic book field so long shaped some of his storytelling sensibilities. To me, I think that there's a direct correlation between the strong imagery found within this book, the very specific plotting of the characters, their beats, the action, the pacing within a scene, and his involvement in scripting the Lock and Key comic. If this hadn't come out as a novel, and IDW announced that this was Hill and Rodriguez's follow-up to Lock and Key, I'd be over the smiling Christmasland moon. Sure, we'd miss out on the beautiful prose, and that would be a terrible loss, but I can't help but wonder if this was simply meant to be a comic book. Or a movie. Time will tell. Now comes the time uh, I want to get into the Hillisms. Um, first is... 
and hillisms for for those of you who are first tuning in um i have a section called kingisms which i'm about to get to um which are the the traits and tricks and tropes and patterns that you see from one text to the next um and so not only do we have kingisms um here but we also have hillisms and the first is vivid imagery just open the page, open the book, and put your finger on any paragraph. It doesn't matter which one. Chances are you're touching an incredible description. The second is a counterculture protagonist. Um, you know, whether it be Judas Coyne in Heart-Shaped Box, um, Ig Parish in Horns here um, with Victoria, uh, it, it's not someone that, that, that walks in the um, 9 to 5 world. Um, it's, it's a different type of character that, that we follow. Number three um, is supernatural abduction. Uh, Charlie's story and Bing's basement um, is very, very similar to me to his short story, The Black Phone, that can be found in 20th Century Ghosts. And the fourth is the lover letting go, um, whether it's Marin letting go of Ig in Horns um, or whether it's Vic letting go of Lou. Um, it's, it's a... It's a hillism that I think can be found from text to text. Now, kingisms. Um, the first is uh, references. Okay, we have a lot of references here. We have references to his dad's work, including the Doors to Midworld, uh, reference to Shawshank, Derry, the True Knot, which happened to be the villains of Dr. Sleep, who in turn, in Dr. Sleep, give their fellow road predator a shout-out. He also references his own works from the Night Highway from Heart Shaped Box, Key House from Lock and Key, the Tree House from um, Horns, um, and specifically references Craddock McDermott from Heart Shaped Box. You know, I mean, he even references characters, stories, and books that he hasn't even written yet, such as the train tracks to Orphan Henge, the Crooked Alley, and the Walking Backwards Man with his reverse watch. Um, like. Stephen King, this story ends in a bang. Many of Stephen King's works either end in fire or an explosion, and we get a hell of an explosion at the end of this novel. Number three is the sidekick. Uh, the sidekick character serving the machinations of the primary antagonist is someone that we see in many King's works, um, from Straker to Buster Keaton, Ace Merrill, uh, the TikTok man, and uh, the trash can man. Um, at one point, Bing even says to Manx, my life for you, which is what the trash can man always said to Randall Flagg. Uh, number four is villains screaming in capital letters. Uh, we have both Bing and Charlie doing that at times, and this is something that a lot of Stephen King characters do. Uh, number five, the surreal landscape of Christmasland uh, is reminiscent of The Regulators to me. If you haven't read The Regulators, it's a really good and underrated Stephen King, excuse me, Richard Bachman book. Number six is The Evil Car, um, The Wraith, uh, with a license plate, Nosferatu, uh, is reminiscent of other evil cars that we have seen um, in Christine, um, in Uncle Otto's truck, uh, you name it, the, the evil car pops up again and again and again. Um, number seven is imagination as another dimension. Here, it's described as being an inscape of the mind. Um, in Lisi's story, it's a giant pool. Number eight is the price of using your powers. Um, this is something that we saw from Andy McGee in Firestarter, uh, Jack Sawyer from The Talisman, there was limitations to the powers, um, there were side effects, you know, there were earthquakes uh, that, that would occur if he used his powers. Uh, 
Um, Bing at one point refers to Manx as the good man, proper name, which is also a reference to uh, the Dark Tower's John Farson. Number 10 is addiction and uh, addiction metaphors. Now, King has played with addiction in a number of his works, in Salem's Lot, in The Shining, The Drawing of the Three, Dr. Sleep, and most recently in Revival. In Revival, both the main characters channel their addictions elsewhere, much like Victoria does here. For her, the artistic process is not necessarily a healthy one. It's cathartic in the sense that she needs to keep the ghosts at bay, but in doing so, she is only pushing the ghosts back rather than dealing with them directly. Number 11 is the catchphrase. All right, we have the catchphrase here in the form of dude, um, which is Lou's catchphrase. Number 12, there is the inclusion of a St. Bernard, um, which most famously we saw in Cujo. Number 13, we have the helpful ghost. In Pet Cemetery, we had Victor Pascal. Here we have Grandma Linda. Um, number 14, uh, the villain somehow causes the hero to laugh despite himself. Um, Manx does this with Wayne, um, and we've seen this before with Dandelo and Roland the Gunslinger in the Dark Tower series. Um, and ultimately, uh, we have the quote that I want to share is found on page 408, so I'll pull that up now. 408. Okay. Um, so he is talking. So the, the characters here, um, Vic is talking to Lou and says, I don't know. I think about the Christmas land. I kind of think it is our world, a version of it anyway. The version of it that Charlie Manx carries around in his head. Everyone lives in two worlds, right? There's the physical world. But there's also our own private inner worlds, the worlds of our thoughts, a world made of ideas instead of stuff. It's just as real as our world, but it's inside. It's an inscape. Everyone has an inscape, and they all connect, too, in the same way New Hampshire connects to Vermont. And maybe some people can ride into that world um, if they have the right vehicle, a key, a car, a bike, whatever. So I think that that is what Hill is going here for. And that goes back to the argument that I also have with Inscapes, because if that is a description for Inscapes, I don't understand how people that can access the Inscapes become damaged. Um, but I think that that is the, the, the heart of the plot of the book. And so that's all we've got. So everyone, um, we are now at almost an hour and a half. Um, thank you all for listening this long. Um, if you haven't read... Um, this particular novel and just listen to the review. You probably should listen. You should probably should have read the book first. But um, if you haven't, go out and read it because any problems that I have, um, they're just they're, they're problems and whatever. I'll get over them. It's still a really good book. Uh, so go out and read it. Um, you, you're going to enjoy the the imagery uh, and uh, just the the strong 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 visuals in there. Um, really make me want to see it as, as a movie. So everyone, the reason I released this was because we are now in the holidays. Um, and just thank you all. You've already given me a gift. You have been listening to this podcast. And when I started this in, um, the summer, I didn't, I didn't know if I wouldn't, if I would make it this long. Um, and I, you guys are listening 
from all over the world, which is unbelievable to me. It's absolutely unbelievable. All over the the United Inscapes of America and all over the world. Um, I can't I can't really express into words how much I appreciate it and how grateful I am for the emails that I've gotten, the the reviews on iTunes that I've gotten. Um, you know the just the, the all of the interplay on Twitter and on on uh, Instagram. So just thank you everyone. Thank you for for being a part of the Stephen King cast. This is meant to be uh, a collaboration with everyone out there. So as always, um, feel free to to send in your thoughts on Nosferatu, on horns, on lock and key, on heart shaped box, on twentieth century ghosts, on um, what you. Um, like about Joe Hill as a writer, and of course, as always, you know what you, you know what your experience is with Stephen King, your thoughts on Stephen King, your feelings on Stephen King, how you entered the world of Stephen King, what Stephen King means to you, your favorite Stephen King novel, your favorite Stephen King movie, why? Um, share your thoughts, share your experiences, share your stories because I have an outlet for everyone, and I want I want to be put it I want to be able to put it out there so. Write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you have free time, feel free to um, write a review on iTunes. Because uh, the more reviews we get and the more subscriptions that we get on iTunes, uh, the higher up on the, the list it goes. So um, if you have free time, uh, if you're on vacation during the holidays, uh, you have a couple extra minutes, just um, feel free to do so. And if not, uh, just tune in here, same King time, same King channel next week for our latest review, everyone, and I will see you here next week. Pretend that he is Parson Brown